Uh, some of you will remember that uh, seven weeks ago today, uh, we prayed for Ben and Katty as they headed uh, south for new jobs. And we flagged on that Sunday that it wouldn't be long before Ben and Katty were back with us um, because this Saturday coming is their wedding, which will be happening uh, either here in this room or weather permitting, we'll have to wait and see, maybe outside in the forest. Uh, I think they'll need a better day than, than it is today. Let's, let's pray that that is the case. Um, so definitely keep Ben and Katty in your prayers for that. Weddings are remarkable moments. On Saturday, Ben and Katty will voluntarily, and that's important, give themselves away one to the other. Ben will, God willing, say these exact words among other profound declarations. He will say this, I declare my love for you, Katty, and I give myself to you as your husband. And Katty will, a few moments later, declare in exactly the same way that she is giving herself away to no longer be her own but for Ben and Katty to together be bound up in their new identity together as one flesh, as a team, as husband and wife. What a weighty and stunningly beautiful countercultural reality to give yourself to someone else in an age of autonomy independence, self-reliance, self-determination, which is just the air we breathe all around about us to say, I'm not my own. I'm choosing to entrust myself to you is a very profound and very wonderful reality, which, by the way, is why it's so devastatingly evil when that trust that someone has given you is trampled on, and that self-giving is exploited. When Paul writes about marriage in Ephesians 5, he underlines the stunning miracle that marriage is when he says, this mystery is profound. And then he says, and I am saying that it, this teaching on marriage, this mystery refers to Christ and the church. Most ultimately, marriage including what will happen here on Saturday, is not most ultimately an end in itself, but is a picture. It's a lived metaphor of how Jesus and the church relate to one another. And just briefly, as an aside, I want to flag a wonderful video by pastor from down south who you hear us talk about a lot, Andrew Wilson. We love our Andrew Wilson, uh, and we love Andrew Wilson, pastor from down south. And there's an amazing video he's got which speaks to this beautiful reality about what marriage is. And he, it's called, uh, let me, uh, it's called This Is About That. And if you go into YouTube and type in This Is About That, or just type in Andrew Wilson Marriage, uh, you'll get not Andrew and Sarah Wilson's wedding, you'll get uh, Andrew Wilson Pastor and this wonderful four and a half minute video about this beautiful reality, how marriage points to the relationship between Christ and the church. So, so, so pray for Ben and Katty this coming weekend as they give themselves away to one another. And now, 
here this morning, pray for yourself and those around about you as you ponder in these next moments how you can give yourself away. Or more accurately, thinking of Jeremiah 31, how you can find life and peace and joy and blessing in receiving God who invites you to come to Him. This God who draws you to Himself to be known as His because this is what our passage in Jeremiah 31 speaks of of this beautiful relationship between God and his people that eventually Paul would come to write about in Ephesians chapter 5. And this relationship between God and his people can include every single person here in this room or who might find this sermon, who knows, maybe years from now on YouTube. So I just want to pick up from where we left off last week. We finished last week at verse 26 of those beautiful words. At this I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. Now our main focus for today is going to be verses 31 to 34. But just to link to that point, we have first verses 27 and 28. And in those verses, God is speaking of this work of restoration that he is going to do among his people. In in verse 27, it speaks how God is going to repopulate the land full of people and full of livestock so that they can live and, and flourish in that place. And then look at verse 28, it says, And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. This ties back, by the way, to the very call of Jeremiah in chapter 1. Jeremiah call, God called Jeremiah to proclaim that there would be tearing down, there would be destruction. And we looked in the first week at how vast numbers of chapters of Jeremiah focus on this. The devastating landscape of the book of Jeremiah is that there will be plucking up, breaking down, overthrowing, destroying, harm done as judgment, right and true and and appropriate judgment upon God's people. And Jeremiah was to proclaim that, but was also to proclaim this beautiful phrase that God would build and would plant and bring restoration. And it's only with the context of the devastation in mind that the blessing of this can truly sink in this work that God does in restoration and creating an environment for his people to once again flourish with him. Then, from verse 29 through to verse 30, God takes a proverb of the day and revises it. So let's read verse 29. In those days they shall no longer say, and this would have been a known proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now, 
This is talking about the relationship that the acts of one generation have for the subsequent generations. And in those days, it was a a very commonly held understanding that there was a great significance from generation to generation that what your father or your grandfather or your great-grandfather did affected the the lines of how your family would live. And in verse 30, God is saying that a day is coming when that proverb won't be appropriate anymore. When the standing that people have before God, when, when the, the degree of flourishing that they have in their lives will not be based on what your father or your grandfather has done, but it will be with regard to what each person individually does. Look at verse 30. But, so here's the proverb from, from now and days gone by, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. You see, not the children. It's not going to be the focus now. Now, this is significant because it speaks to how we should receive the coming passage. We've, we've talked a few times about how these chapters of Jeremiah are written not just to individuals, but to the, the, the breadth of God's people as a whole. But it's important for us to recognize there is a personal element to this, where each person here should indeed must consider what this means for them, themselves. And then all of that happens within the context of the bigger story of God. So verses 27 and 28, restoration, building, planting from God on a macro scale. Verses 29 to 30, the prophet is highlighting, well, don't think that just means that you're subsumed into the collective. There there is a personal call here for each and every one of us. And we'll see this mix in the coming verses as well. The covenant that God makes is, as you see in verse 31, we'll read it in just a second, is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That is to say, it's with all of God's people. And this matters for every single individual. Look at verse 34. They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. This is why I said, pray for yourself and pray for those around about you. As we come to these times, think of what does this mean for me and God, but also remember that you don't just come alone. We're part of God's people and pray that God will do a miracle here among us, even in you and the people around us, that we would know that we need not fear for those who are in the covenant people of God. Now let's read these main verses, verses 31 to 34. Before we get here, I just want to flag to you just what a massive passage this is in terms of how we understand the Christian faith. Do you know that it's because of this passage that the two different parts of our Bible are called the Old Testament and the New Testament. That word testament is synonymous with the word covenant, And that's what they used to be called, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And this is the only place in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, where this little phrase, New Covenant, comes. So as the early church identified themselves as people of the New Covenant with God, by as early as the end of the second century, the church fathers were referring to the Bible in the way that we do now. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Testament. So, It's a big passage. Let's read these wonderful verses. This is God's word. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So this passage, in this passage, God is, through the prophet Jeremiah, pointing forward to a new covenant. So we need to ask, what's a covenant? Uh, And I'm sure some of you can give an awesome answer to that. But to be honest with you, I needed to do some studying on it just to make sure I had a good understanding of it. Mike's already given us a nice wee introduction to to that. What was indeed the old covenant and and why does it matter anyway? Now, in order for us to think about what a covenant is, uh, we're going to watch a video on this very topic created by an amazing ministry called The Bible Project. I'm sharing this video for two reasons. Firstly, because I want every one of you to be aware of this amazing ministry, The Bible Project. Subscribe to their YouTube channel, subscribe to their newsletter, just Google it, you'll find them there. They just create the most wonderful short videos to explain themes, Bible books, words, uh, genres of the Bible. It's, it's an incredible resource. And, and, and that's the second reason why I'm sharing the video with you, because they're awesome. In fact, if you're a preacher, they're devastatingly awesome, because they can say more in five minutes than pretty much any preacher can say in a whole sermon or a whole series of sermons. So here we go. Uh, let's watch the first part of this video on this topic of covenants. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much, and that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. 
And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great. So what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into... So we'll just pause there as that little green Jesus uh, pops up. We'll come back to this video before the end. But we find ourselves exactly where that video mentioned there towards the end with the covenants made between God and his people broken repeatedly and God's people in exile away from the land that he had given them. And it would be hopeless apart from Jeremiah 31 and this new covenant which we're speaking about. Because this new covenant is coming, declares the Lord, and we'll come back to that. Not like the covenant that I made, verse 32, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. You see this marriage language being used here again, which points us forward to Ephesians 5 and other places. Something different is coming. A new way for God and his people to be together. Not to say, by the way, that this was any surprise to God. In fact, if you go back and look at Deuteronomy 30 
and at least the first 14 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 30, before God's people had even entered into the land that He had for them, you see that God was well aware of what was going to come to pass. And this new covenant, the details of this new covenant are spoken about with remarkable detail back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. So what is this new covenant? What does it mean for us? We need to know this because, spoiler alert, this is the covenant that we live under just now, which is to say this is all that Christianity is about, is about living under the new covenant that God has with His people. And I want to briefly mention five things. There's many more, but five things that this new covenant is, which I hope can be a blessing to us. First of all, it is internal, not eternal. It is eternal, but it's internal. Look at the first part of verse 33. For this is the covenant right? So it's not like the one before, verse 32, and now God is, through Jeremiah, going to explain to us what what is this new covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I'll put their law inside, within them, and then in case there's any doubt what that means, There's this picture language of, I will write it on their hearts. Now, Jeremiah has had a lot to say in the book so far about the heart of God's people. He's obviously not talking about a bunch of physical organs within every person's body. He's speaking about their inclinations, their desires, that which drives them, that which is the the source from where their actions come. And over many chapters in Jeremiah, like we said, it's devastating to be honest. He makes clear that the heart of God's people is not pretty. A phrase that comes up again and again is that the people of Israel stubbornly, that's one of the most used words, stubbornly followed their own evil heart. So, How does Jeremiah describe the heart of God's people? Evil. What's the result of that? They stubbornly reject God and they follow their own ways. And in fact, in in chapter 17, we'll just read one example of this. Uh, Jeremiah graphically describes how deep the issue is in verse 1 of chapter 17. Listen to this. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and of the horns of their altars. So this evil heart, the sin of Judah, it's written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. That is what is engraved, left to ourselves, on the heart of God's people. Their sinfulness is not a passing issue from day to day, but it is engraved on the tablet, not an accidental word, we'll come back to that, of their heart. So it's into that context that this new covenant needs to come. And just as evil and sin is written with a diamond tip on on, on the tablet of their heart, so therefore God's new covenant needs to come into them, a new way, a new law written on their hearts. That is to say, God is going to bring fundamental change to how He and His people are to live together. The old covenant was external, was outside of themselves, written on on tablets, 
Literally, hence that, that word there, for God's people to obey through which was supposed to come flourishing and peace and joy for God's people. And as that video helpfully points out, not just for God's people, but from there to all the nations of the land of the earth. But this way is not possible for us to attain. None of us can measure up to these standards. We don't even measure up to the standard with which we judge other people and get frustrated at other people as they behave towards us. We stumble, we fall, we mess up all the time, of course. Let alone, we cannot measure up to the standard that God has for us as He wants to welcome us into His presence of perfect purity and goodness. We're not welcome, right, if it's based on my own accessibility, dependent on my own behavior. This new covenant is rooted not in how well God's people can follow that external law outside of themselves, but this new covenant is the, the wholeness of God's heart for His people given by God deep into our hearts, which then transforms us from the inside out. I will put my law within them, no longer external, and I will write it on their hearts, no longer evil and sin written on there. But God is going to write on our hearts the fullness of what it means to engage with Him in all the beautiful ways that He intended for us, which then transforms us from the inside out. Firstly, it's internal. Secondly, it's personal and relational. The second part of verse 33, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now listen, important side note. This is not saying that there is no value in teaching. <laughs> we believe in teaching the Bible, okay? So we're not, we're not doing away with that altogether, but it is just highlighting this new way of relating to God. Again, it's, it's in contrast to the old covenant. The old way was all about passing down the requirements of the law that God had put in place from one generation to the next. That's what it's saying. You know, you don't need to teach one another. Know the Lord. Do this. Do that. From one generation to the next. From one community to the next. This is what you have to do. This is what you shouldn't do. This is what the religious practices should be that would mark you out as God's people. God's saying, no, no. Do you know what? That was never the main point of the law. All of that was a means to an end. The important thing is, the point is, I will be your God and you will be my people. The point is, verse 34, they shall all know me. And over the days, God's people had lost sight of that. And they had thought it was just about passing down these traditions, regardless of what their hearts were living like, regardless of how much hypocrisy had seeped into their behavior, how prone we are to do the same thing to forget the heart of the matter about knowing and living with God and exchanging that for a bunch of tick boxes that we might feel we got to get through to, to feel good about ourselves by the end of the week. What a pale substitution 
for the beauty of what the covenant is really meant to be about. I will be their God. They will be my people. I will know them from the least to the greatest. You know, everyone's included. Everyone's included. Especially those who are struggling will come to see. The point of the new covenant is God is reminding us it's not about ultimately religious practice. It's ultimately about relationship with me. It's internal. And secondly, it's personal and relational. Thirdly, it's gift. It's gift. It's grace. God is taking the initiative here. I mean, listen to the way these verses unfold. Verse 31, I will make. Verse 33, I will make, God says. I will put. I will write. I will be. Verse 34, I will forgive. God is doing this. And this gift is for everyone from the least to the greatest. And we remember from from Jesus' ministry that it's those who know that they are sick who receive help from the doctor. It's those who know that they are in need who can receive of this gift from God. That's why I said earlier that today is not so much about how you can give yourself to God, but it's more about how you might today receive God who has taken the initiative to draw you to himself. He invites you to come to him and be known as his. It's all a gift of grace. Fourthly, it's certain. God not only takes the initiative, but he sees through his plan. He gives to us and he brings about mystery of mysteries, miracle of miracles. He gives to us and he brings about our receiving of this gift. He, he chose for himself a people through whom all the nations of the earth will know the blessing of God and he will, the story of the scriptures is, he will be faithful to that people. And it's through this new covenant that we know that this gift is certain. This new way of God and his people living together in, in his goodness is Guarantee. This is what, by the way, verses 35 to 37 are all about. It shifts in those verses to speaking about God's incredible power. Verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. When? When will this fixed order of things depart? The sun, the moon, the stars, the waves in their place doing their things. When will that happen? Never. Never. That's when the offspring of Israel shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Never. Look at verse 37. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Can the heavens be fully measured? Have people maybe thought so at certain points? Are they figuring out again and again? Oh, there's a little bit more that we didn't know about yet. There's another bit that we found. 
Can the seas and the foundations of the earth be fully known, both in terms of their depth and indeed the, I think, infinite complexity of every little particle that is in there? No, these things cannot be figured out. So in that way, God will never cast off the offspring of Israel. Friend, brother, sister, that's you. If you trust him, if you come to Jesus, this is a promise. Write it down. Score it in your Bible. Make it clear. God will never cast you off. I, I loved when Mike was sharing earlier about the honesty, the honesty of feeling nervous that we'll lose that connection with God. It's a good thing to acknowledge the fear of that. But it's also wonderful to, to, to live our lives on the rock-solid certain truth that God will never cast you off. Those who are in the hand of God, nothing can pluck you out from that place. Nothing. Nothing. That's why it says nine times from verse 27 to the end of the chapter, we hear this little phrase. Have you heard me say it a few times? Three words. Declares the Lord. I think there's one slight variation on that. But in verse 27, in verse 28, look at verse 31. Uh, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Look at verse 32. Um, I, for my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Look at verse 33. I will make this new covenant with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. The same in verse 34, the, the same in verse 35, 37, and 38. God is making clear. Not only is this a gift of grace, but I am going to see through what I have started. I'm declaring it to you. I'm not just musing this. I'm not just thinking this up on the spot. <laughs> God speaks with that supreme authority. It's all gift and it's all God. Take heart in that fact today and tomorrow and next year when your faith feels small. We all have those moments. You may hold on to God and some days you may not. But God will never let go of you. He will never cast you off. So, this new covenant is internal, something that God does inside of us. It's personal and relational. It's all gift. Fourthly, it's certain and sure. And then finally, it's for now. It's for now. Donald, can we watch the second part of that video just now? It's about a minute and a half left, and then we'll close. So, it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham, and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David, and so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. 
So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. Jesus secured this new covenant. You can read about that uh, significantly in the book of Hebrews, especially chapters 8, chapters 9, and chapters 12. And and when we can hear about it from the mouth of Jesus himself, who uh, on the night before he was betrayed, as he shared a Passover meal with his disciples, he took a cup. And do you remember the words he said? He said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You see, in order for this to happen, in order for God's law to fully and wholly come into our hearts, we can't do that ourselves. Only one man ever fulfilled God's law perfectly, Jesus. And so Jesus died in our place, taking on himself our sin and giving us his righteousness and his righteous fulfillment of the law. This is something that Jesus points to again and again in his ministry. And the point is this, that through the blood of Christ, we have access to this new covenant connection with God. It's for now. It's here through Jesus. It cost him his life, the shedding of his blood. Don't ignore this gift. Friends, how will you know peace in this life? Through the pursuit of a good moral code, by living well according to whatever ethos of the day we might adopt or live under. That's a heavy burden to carry. That's a weight that none of us can bear. I'm inviting us all today through Jesus Christ to receive the life-giving law of God secured through this new covenant through Jesus. If you struggle to understand what it means to to have the law of God written on your heart, to, to know it within you. Maybe ponder this picture. Imagine a team hiking up a hill and you realize that one of the party have become short of breath and it gets worse and worse, and worse to the extent that you need to call on help. So you call the mountain rescue team and after a little while they arrive with a nice big tank full of wonderful oxygen and they take it off their back and they proceed to strap the tank of oxygen on the back of the person in need. That's not going to help them. I mean, it's, it's wonderful oxygen, but when it's given like that, it just highlights and accentuates the need that there was already, it needs to be taken in to become part of that person for it to bring 
life. And, and this is like us with God's law. We are all stumbling around in this world, gasping for air. And when we receive any code, whether it's the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, whether it's any set of rules that you think it's appropriate to live under, when you receive those as purely an external reality, something to bear on our backs and grapple and wrestle with, it just exposes how needy we are. We need to take it in. We need our hearts to be changed, our hearts to be perfectly aligned with the law of God. We need it deep down in our souls, and it's only through Jesus that that can happen. Scott Sauls is a, a wonderful writer and pastor in the States, and he tweeted out this last week a quote from someone called George Robertson, and it's just a helpful little way to frame it. It says this, don't give your heart to Jesus. Instead, Say to Jesus, give me a new heart, Lord. It's all gift. It's all grace. It's all from him. Breathe him in. John chapter 14 says that we receive not just the law, but actually the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ himself by the Spirit. Breathe him in, and in that, the miracle happens. God joins us to Christ. Our hearts are aligned perfectly with God's law, not because of ourselves, but because of glorious, awesome Jesus. And he begins to transform us from the inside out. Come to him and know the beautiful reality of God saying to you, I will be your God. You will be my child. And together, we will be his people. Let's pray. Father, we just acknowledge before you this morning the burdens that we carry. Those things that are outside of us that we strive and wrestle and struggle with. The ways that we try and make sense of this life. The, the ways that we try and continue to, to journey on the mountain of life. And they're just weighing us down. They're just making things worse. We acknowledge that we're gasping for air. And we need your life. We need the air, the breath of the Spirit of God. We need you within us. We need your law within our heart. We need you to, to, to take that whatever was written before that was dirty and evil and whichever which speaks falsehood and toxicity over us and that would lead us to believe that we're doomed forever. We need you to write a new message on our heart that we're yours that we're safe in Christ that our heart beats perfectly in in line with yours and I pray Lord that we might go forth from this place full of joy and full of peace knowing that whether we always feel like we can grip onto you, we know that you will never let go of us. And that heart that beats for you will never stop beating, but through Jesus Christ will beat for now and forevermore. Help us know that reality. And then change us, God, from the inside out that we might more fully, more wholly, more appropriately live with your law in us being spread through us. 
sharing Jesus with those around about us. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.